It's a beautiful spring, especially with the Hawks in the final. But I think I noticed a little bit of hesitation on the part of some. Now let's make a deal here, you know. Those of you who were purple in times other than the Easter season, okay? Uh, in the spirit of rejoicing with those who rejoice, I promise you that if the K-State football team gets into the national championship game, I will root for them, okay? I will. We also, both of us may need to mourn with those that mourn. You never know about these things. All right, well, you know, my life, at least some portions of it, can be described as a day late and a dollar short. Uh, about, after we've been married for about 20 years, Christy and I discovered this course called Growing Kids God's Way. And that's something that Sean and, and Tanya uh, teach right now, and I highly recommend it for anybody that has kids or wants to have kids. Uh, but and we started to facilitate that course ourselves. The problem was that several of our kids had already grown or, or out of the home. Uh, several years, a few years later, we started to notice from some of our friends, you know, largely Christian, a lot of them in the homeschooling community, uh, started to notice that uh, once they left the home, they started to kind of drop away from the faith, okay? Uh, and which might be an indication that they never really were saved in the first place. But nonetheless, it's concerning. And so we took a look and, and we found that there's all kinds of resources available to solidify faith. Uh, and so we started a class for high schoolers uh, called Getting to the Gospel. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the problem again was, you know, by that time about half my kids were out of the home and married and doing other stuff. So... While a day late and a dollar short, I guess I cling to that phrase, better late than never. Okay? Uh, and, but through that class, Christy and I have been exposed to stuff that helps us understand that the Christian worldview matches reality so much better than any other. And how science is really the friend and not the opponent of Christianity. So today we're going to touch upon just a portion of that class, some of the evidences for and how to respond to arguments against the resurrection of Christ. Now, again, like last month, this is not an Easter message, okay? Uh, Mike's going to do that, and he always does a great job. But this is a part of, this is the 14th message uh, in a series about passing faith on to the younger generation. Last month, we talked about a risen Christ in a fallen world, and we addressed some of the biggest obstacles, said that, you know, the existence of pain and tragedy and mishap is a major stumbling block for some people to come to faith. And uh, it raises the question, how could a good and loving God allow such things to happen? And that led us into an aspect of God's sovereignty and his plan, how all he uses all things to work together for good. He's got the big picture. We don't. He's in control. That led to a question about the truth of the resurrection as an essential conviction for Christians. It's key to understanding that God is in control and we must trust him, especially when we meet with tragedy, like the apparent tragedy of the crucifixion whether it's on the world stage or in our personal lives. So we emphasize the importance of rock-solid faith 
in the defining event of Christianity. Uh, as Paul wrote, if Christ has not raised your faith, your faith and mine is futile. We are still in our sins and we are of all people most to be pitied because we're fools. We've fallen for a lie. Now, this is going to seem more like a Sunday school lesson, but I think it's that important. Bill will be able to go into more detail with some of these things next week. Uh, we all need to understand this. We need to consider why we celebrate the resurrection in just a couple of weeks. So I'm going to ask you to imagine that you're in a classroom and you might be called upon to answer out loud. Okay? So class, here are the questions I want you to be prepared to answer out loud. I won't ask you, but be prepared. Is this Easter season anything more than bunnies and eggs? More than big hats and pastel dresses? Or even more than palm leaves and a purple cloth draped on a cross? In other words, is this more than simply a religious observance to you. Now, uh, I think it's easy for us to look askance at the high churches out there with their liturgies and, and just say they're just following the, you know, the, the order of service in their bulletin. But uh, to paraphrase some country music person, I got friends in low churches. <laughs> and I think we can be accused of the very same thing. So do you believe that the resurrection actually occurred or are you just playing along with everybody else? If someone were to ask you, why do you believe that this Jesus rose from the dead given all the other possible explanations for that myth? Next question, what would you say? You may ask, why do we need to talk about this? I mean, of course Jesus rose from the grave. That's what we're celebrating at Easter. Well, if you think about it, that's a little bit circular. Um, if our goal is to pass our faith on to our family, our children and grandchildren, and to others, we have to understand that the world is luring those people, children, grandchildren, and others, into its own religions, starting in primary school. In other words, young people are targets who are subject to peer pressure through temptation of sin, the direct challenge of the so-called scientific facts like evolution, the outright rejection uh, of science called gender identity, or shaming your children for even hinting that there is any such thing as objective truth and a transcendent and righteous God who judges sin. There are people, large corporations, institutions, and government leaders who are trying to cast doubt right now in the minds of young people. When the president of your country gets up and says that the best thing that parents can do for their children is to affirm their transgenderism. 
you know we've reached a crisis point. And he did that this week. So the next 35 minutes or so, we're going to take a look at some of those evidences for the most important event in human history. The goal is for you and me, our children and grandchildren, to first solidify faith and secondly, to be ready to make a defense for, to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. This will help guard the young from the evangelization of the world and beyond that it should give them and you and I more confidence to talk openly about our faith with others. So let's first take a look at what some of the, what the Bible scholars of all stripes agree upon about the resurrection. When a dispute ends up in court, the parties will sometimes agree to certain facts in order to narrow the issues. And they call this a stipulation, okay? They agree that we're not gonna fight over these facts and the court may accept these facts as true without further evidence. Gary Habermas is a uh, Bible scholar at Liberty University, and he approaches the question of the resurrection using the facts upon which atheist, agnostic, and Jewish New Testament scholars all adopt as true. And he researched 1,400 of their works about the resurrection to come up with a list that's on your study sheet. I'll go through them briefly. They all agree that Jesus was a real person who died by crucifixion, that he was buried probably in a, a private tomb, that his disciples were in fact discouraged and despondent, that the tomb was found empty very soon after his burial. The disciples had experienced they believed were actual appearances of Jesus risen from the grave. And because of those experiences, the disciples changed to so much that they were willing to die for their belief. The disciples proclaimed that Jesus was resurrected from the dead very early from the beginning of the church history. The proclamation and preaching of resurrection took place in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and arose. Uh, the disciples gathered for worship on Sunday. The brother of Jesus, James, who had been a skeptic, he, he uh, denied his own brother. He was converted when he believed he saw the risen Jesus. And Saul of Tarsus, later becoming Paul, just a few years later, became a believer due to an experience during which he also believed was an appearance of the risen Christ. So with this stipulation of facts, we can draw certain conclusions about the New Testament. First of all, it's not a legend. The New Testament was written within two generations of the events by eyewitnesses or their contemporaries and corroborated by non-Christian authors. At least 30 historical figures mentioned in the New Testament have been confirmed by non-biblical sources. It's not a lie. Uh, it, and we know that because it includes embarrassing details like the cowardice of the disciples and Peter's betrayal. It includes sayings by Jesus that are demanding and difficult, not exactly an attractive message if you're trying to lure people into a false belief. The writers of the New Testament even challenged others to disprove their account, like the disappearance of the body, and, and by, re, by reciting nitty-gritty details that were easy to check out and to disprove if they were not true. And finally, it's not an exaggeration. The writers were meticulous in reciting the facts. 
uh, with over 140 historical confirmed details. And scattered among those historical facts were the miracles without embellishment or any significant theological argument. Just the facts, ma'am. Therefore, we can conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that the New Testament writers were accurately reporting what they saw and what they believed. However, can you therefore conclude that the resurrection was true, is true? So here is where we go beyond the Sunday school lesson that the little ones just accept without argument. And I want to urge parents to consider if your young people are really grounded in their faith, do they understand why they believe what they believe. If you don't make the foundations available to your own kids so that they know the reasons for their faith, someone will someday challenge those beliefs. And if they cannot answer those challenges, how will that affect their faith and their witness? So first, in our discussion about the historicity of the resurrection, to be objective and effective, we've got to give the skeptics a fair shot and contend with their arguments. We shouldn't be accused of answering a matter before we hear it. That means we consider the counter arguments to the resurrection to see whether they have merit, to see whether they hold water. So we're going to be dealing here not with just unbelievers who don't give a hoot about anything in the Bible or the resurrection. We're dealing with people who have studied this issue and we're going to answer uh, the scholars who who offer an alternative to the miracle of the resurrection. So in the stipulation of fact we discussed, it was agreed that the disciples and James and Paul all believed that Christ rose from the dead. Everybody agrees that they believe that. So one set of alternative arguments stems from the possibility that these biblical witnesses were deceived. So the first theory we'll talk about, there's on your sheet, is that the disciples were hallucinating when they sincerely thought they saw the risen Christ. Okay, now think about this. What are hallucinations like? Kind of like dreams, right? And how do we experience dreams? As individuals, right? We generally don't have dreams together as a group. I can't think of when I did. All right, uh, so uh, even if a group was, let's say they're all tripping out on the same drug and they're all saying, yeah, I got, a, you know, I got something really go wild going on in my mind, they're not going to be able to say they're all thinking the same thing. Uh, Jesus appeared uh, a dozen separate times over 40 days uh, in various activities with, to more than 500 people. So hallucinations don't usually ask to be touched or eat food in front of others as Jesus did. Secondly, even if we were to assume that these witnesses were having the same hallucination together, the Jewish and Roman authorities could have easily nipped Christianity in the bud simply by producing the body. So it's fair to say that the hallucination theory is not beyond a reasonable doubt. In fact, there are very reasonable doubts about that one. There's another one that proposes the disciples on Easter morning went to the wrong tomb. It happened to be empty. Same problem. The body could have been produced from the right tomb. 
Apologist William Lane Craig points out that this theory assumes that all of the Jews and Romans had a permanent amnesia about what they had done with the body. So it can't account for the appearances of Jesus later on. And recall, it was not the empty tomb, but rather his appearances that convinced most of the disciples that he had risen, including Paul and James. Now, when I was growing up, one of my favorite TV shows was one called Fractured Flickers. Anybody remember that one? Okay. Bill's an old timer. Okay. And Fractured Flickers, uh, this guy, I can't remember his name, but he took all these silent movies and he cut and pasted them, you know, all the, it was literally film, or yeah, film back then. And he came up with his own story and he narrated it because the, the actors weren't talking or you couldn't hear them. And the one that I remember was about two hero German shepherds named Froth and Foam, okay? And they're out to save the world. And at one point, Froth tragically dies. And then later, Foam gets in a real pickle while he's, you know, fighting evil. And then you see the, the video of a German shepherd in the back of a biplane flying along, and the narrator says, meanwhile, Froth, only half dead, comes to the rescue. Get it? Okay, that's exactly the theory that some people have, that Jesus wasn't really dead on the cross, just mostly dead. Okay? We call this the apparent death or swoon theory, according to which, after a quick recovery, he simply escaped from the tomb. We got a few fatal flaws with this one. First of all, Christians and skeptics all agree that Jesus died on the cross. You have to believe that professional executioners at the risk of death failed to complete their job. After whipping, beating, nailing, and spearing Jesus, they were so sure of his demise that they didn't even try to, or didn't find it necessary to break his legs as they did the criminals to his side. According to John 19, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus embalmed Jesus in 75 pounds of wrapping and spices. Would they do that if they weren't sure of his death? Uh, if he had survived, the wounds would have bled him to death while he was in the tomb. And if he survived that, unwrapping himself and moving a rather large stone covering uh, would have been quite a feat for somebody so badly injured. Uh, and then there's that pesky question about getting past the Roman guards uh, and uh, who could have been put to death if they had, you know, for dereliction of duty. Uh, can you imagine uh, this bleeding, battered pulp of a man convincing anyone, including the cowardly disciples, that he was the risen son of God in the flesh? Of course, the swoon theory cannot account for the later appearances to Paul on the road to Damascus. That appearance was so impactful, it turned a sworn enemy of Jesus' followers into its most zealous advocate. It just does not make sense that a man filled with hatred for the blasphemers of Judaism would convert on the spot by being confronted by just an ordinary man. Finally, many non-Christian writers affirm that Jesus died by crucifixion, including Josephus, Tacitus, Thallus, and the Jewish Talmud, none of which are friendly sources to Christianity. 
An argument made by Muslims is that it only appeared that Jesus was crucified, perhaps by substituting another person in his place. The Quran says, quote, they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein, I think he means us, are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only a conjecture to follow, for a surety they killed him not. Now that was written 600 years after Jesus appeared in the flesh, and it contradicts all the eyewitnesses by Christians and non-Christians. It requires us to believe that the Roman guards, Pilate, the Jews, the disciples, and his own family were all mistaken about who was nailed on the cross. It also leaves us unanswered question of the empty tomb uh, of the person laid in his place. Another thing that we cover in uh, our, our class with, with uh, high schoolers is something called the burden of proof. In a court of law, one side or the other has the burden of proof. They have to prove something, the other party does not have to disprove it. Uh, and so uh, we have, but to do this, we've tried to help our students respond to statements of unbelievers who deny a Christian worldview uh, by not making assertions, not making statements, but rather by asking questions like, how did you come to your conclusion? Now, this puts the burden of proof on them to back up their statement. Often, it, may, it will become apparent from their, uh, their response that they don't really know why they believe what they believe. It's just a restatement of what they've heard from others or perhaps online. They don't have any real foundation for what they're believing. It's just a regurgitation. By asking questions rather than making statements from the Bible, you avoid the problem of somebody saying, well, I don't believe in the authority of the Bible. Uh, but you keep the conversation going. And when someone raises these alternatives, you can place the burden of proof where it belongs, on the, on the person making the claim. A claim in a theory is not evidence. And if someone responds that they read about this or they heard about this in a seminar or something like that, uh, you can say, well, do you have any evidence for that? Or do you have any first century sources that confirm what you're saying about this theory? You can be confident there, there is no such evidence or source. And the alternative theories all have fatal flaws. On the other hand, we as believers have credible eyewitness testimony and circumstantial evidence that Christ really rose from the dead. It requires a lot more faith, blind faith, to believe that the resurrection was a fake or a lie than to accept it as true. So the other arguments uh, are based upon the notion that these so-called witnesses were actually deceiving all of the people around them, including us today. One such more recent attack came, comes from uh, uh, something called the Jesus Seminar. Uh, and their theory says that, and these are theologians, these are liberal theologians that come up with ways to pick apart the gospel. Uh, and they say that the disciples studied the scriptures, which would be, which would be the Old Testament, and because the Bible says they searched the scriptures. And they found, according to these people, that in their words, quote, Persecution, if not execution, was almost like a job description for being God's elect. Well, there was a debate between uh, uh, William Lane Craig and the founder of the Jesus uh, Seminar back in the 1990s. And uh, Craig took apart this argument. He said, yeah, 
The searching of the scriptures came after they experienced the resurrection appearance. The faith of the disciples did not lead to the resurrection appearances, but it was the appearances which led to their faith. They then searched the scriptures. Think about the situation after the crucifixion. The disciples were hiding for their lives. If they did that to their leader, what would they do to them? So the resurrection was the cause of their faith, not the result of misguided and dangerous deception by people who had been scared, scattered, and even skeptical. Skeptical. Like the other theories, the Jesus Seminar Theory cannot account for the conversion of Paul and James or the appearances of the 500 others. One theory that we heard in Topeka uh, last fall uh, was that the, uh, the resurrection finds its origin in mythology. Some of you may have attended the debate at Washburn University, sponsored in part by Lion and Lamb through Christian Challenge, between Christian apologist Mike Lacona and Dr. Dennis McDonald. McDonald argued that the New Testament narrative was contrived from the influence of classical Greek literature, particularly from Homer. Now this suggests that the New Testament and consequently the resurrection is not historical because the New Testament writers copied pagan myths, including the myths about the resurrection from ancient writings. And if you've been in our uh, Mere Christianity class, you know that, that uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, a lover and a writer of myths, called the Gospels a myth, but not your ordinary myth, rather a true myth. But when you think about the concept of a myth as we normally do, as fictional, Lewis was clear when he said in uh, Christian Reflections, quote, all I am in private life is a literary critic and a historian. That's my job. And I'm prepared to say that on that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legends or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people. And, uh, and I know perfectly well that the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. So what, Le what Lewis is saying here is that the Gospels primarily report facts. But the subject matter draws us in like a myth. It's just a true myth. The Greek and Roman myths never spoke of a literal God becoming man through a virgin birth. Rather, the polytheistic Greeks uh, taught reincarnation into mortal bodies, while the New Testament teaches resurrection of our bodies made Im immortal. Uh, the only known account of God become, coming back to life before Christ was the Egyptian god Osiris, uh, who was brought back not to physical life, but became a member of a shadowy underworld by the goddess Isis. Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona point out that, quote, this is far different from Jesus' resurrection account, where he was the gloriously risen prince of life, who was seen by others on earth before his ascension into heaven. All the other parallel uh, situations of dying and rising gods came no earlier than 150 AD. So if there was any influence of resurrection accounts, it was, the, it was Christ's resurrection on mythology, not the reverse. Finally, the most common theory about the resurrection 
and ironically, the one that provides powerful evidence for the truth of resurrection is that the disciples stole the body of Christ and then made up the resurrection story. In other words, uh, this theory contends that all the New Testament writers were liars. Now, several absurdities here. If the resurrection was made up, the New Testament writers could have easily chosen an unknown location for the tomb so that there would be no way to disprove the claims of an empty tomb. Instead, they recorded that the burial of the tomb could be easily identified and verified. A tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Why would the New Testament writers choose him? So this is not how you get away with a lie. We know that the tomb was empty because this body heist theory was the Jewish explanation for the missing body, as it recorded in, in Matthew 28, where it says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if, come, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, and they did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews unto this day. Okay, So Matthew's writing this just uh, a decade or two later. But Justin Martyr in uh, 150 A.D. and Tertullian in 200 A.D. wrote that the Jews were still offering that explanation when they wrote. And basically, this is a tacit admission and that for the only logical conclusion that the tomb really was empty. Now, if the resurrection story was made up, who would you choose to discover the empty tomb? Wouldn't you choose the most credible witnesses? Yeah, okay. Uh, as an example, I have, had a, have it on pretty good authority that uh, prosecution of human trafficking is very, very difficult. Traffickers control their victims by dependence, feeding their addictions. If you can possibly get a person being trafficked to testify at all, they are generally drug addicts that do not make good witnesses. And these less than credible witnesses are not so because they're women. It's because of their addiction their convictions most likely prior to that, and, and possibly their diminished capacity resulting from their addiction. And a good defense attorney can destroy their credibility when on the stand. Very difficult area to deal with, as some people here know firsthand. But who were the first witnesses to the empty tomb? In that day, the first witnesses of the empty tomb lack credibility simply because they were women. The testimony of women in that day uh, carried no weight in court. Add to that, Mary Magdalene had actually been demon-possessed. So if you wanted people to believe your false story of that day, you would choose men who were known, who had reputations for being reliable to make the discovery. Because credibility of a witness is always vital. But it is the fact that the New Testament writers honestly reported facts using female witnesses that actually furthers the writer's credibility. Some people might ask, well, 
why didn't Jesus appear to the Pharisees? There's no mention of the Pharisees in the accounts after the resurrection. Uh, but Luke records in Acts 6 that a large number of Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. And then later in Acts 15, he said, he, he recorded that some of these Jewish believers were in fact Pharisees. Now, so if all this was made up, Luke provided an easy way to check it out and disprove the resurrection with his claim that some Pharisees had become believers. If no Pharisees converted, easily disproved. If so, why would these Pharisees, who are the most devoted, most legalistic, most sticking to their faith, why would they betray their faith for a lie? Up to this point, we've considered the arguments for those who doubt or displease or disbelieve that Jesus rose from the dead. So I hope that you can see that there are good, solid reasons to not fall for those arguments. They all have fatal flaws. Also, I hope that you will see how important it is for children and grandchildren to understand these reasons so that they will not doubt when challenged by these arguments once they're out of the home or even now when they see it uh, through social media. Now, beyond all that, if we take the Great Commission seriously, we will want those young people to be able to stand on their own with confidence to share their positive reasons for their faith and be able to answer the arguments of the world. So, if an atheist or even a person, a seeker, who really wants to know the reason for their faith, if they were to ask you, your child or grandchild, how did you conclude that Jesus rose from the dead? What would they say? Because that's a pretty fantastical statement. Now, we ask our students that same question in the class. Then we follow up with the, the statement. Well, if your answer is, well, that's what I've always believed, or that's what my parents taught me, or my Sunday school teacher, or my pastor told me, how much credibility will they have with that skeptic or that person who really wants to know answers from them? This is not to say there's anything wrong with childlike faith. The problem is that we have doubting Thomases out there who need to see in order to believe. So if it is our mission to not only be faithful but effective in sharing our faith, why would we not prepare by learning these reasons for our faith? Not surprisingly, I think the most powerful argument beyond faith for knowing the resurrection is true gets back to that factor of the credibility of the witnesses. So uh, let me ask some more questions here, class. Why do witnesses lie? Okay, isn't it because it benefits them in some way? In other words, they might be paid off, or that their lives might be threatened if they don't lie. Uh, you know, recall the human trafficking example. Now, when are witnesses most credible? Okay, a witness might have a reputation for honesty. Uh, but if there's no opportunity to develop that reputation, one must look for other signs of credibility. In court, one of those signs is called an admission against interest. Uh, this is when a witness openly admits something that sheds 
a poor light upon the witness themselves, admits a mistake, a fault of some sort, or puts the witness at risk of further troubles. So let's do a hypothetical here. Suppose you're living back then and you are a follower of a carpenter from Nazareth who claims to be the son of God. You and others are crushed when he ends up nailed to a cross and then laid in a tomb. But you and the other disciples carry out a plan to take the body, bury it, dispose of it where it cannot be found. Then you claim that the carpenter really was the son of God because he rose from the dead and he appeared to you knowing that it's all a big lie. However, you start to notice that some of your co-conspirators get a reaction when they say those things, and some of them are put to death. Answer the following question in your own mind. Are you in any way going to hold to your story to your death when you know it's not true? Now, some might point out that many people die for, th for something that isn't true. Yeah, it, some of you remember the Jim Jones thing where a bunch of people followed him, I think Guyana or someplace like that, and they all believed in Jim Jones and they all drank the Kool-Aid and they all died. Okay? And of course, the 9-11 terrorists who you know, flew the airplanes in and killed a bunch of people, they all died for their faith, didn't they? Well, there's a difference here. Those poor souls actually believed they had the truth. In our hypo, you know you're lying. Okay? Uh, the late Chuck Colson had this uh, experience personally. Uh, he worked in the administration of President Richard Nixon, and he was known as Nixon's hatchet man. And during the re-election campaign, there was a break-in to the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Hotel, from, when, from whence we get the name, Watergate. All right? Chris, uh, Colson became a willing participant in the cover-up of that break-in, along with several other of the Nixon aides who were intensely loyal to President Nixon. Eventually, charges were brought uh, uh, for the cover-up uh, against these A's, and these A's were some of the most powerful men in America. That's when the loyalty ended. John Dean, uh, one of the co-conspirators, made a deal with the prosecutor and turned state's evidence. And in other words, he testified that, yeah, we knew. And in his words, this was to, quote, save my own skin, unquote. After that, all the others jumped ship as well to save themselves from more harsh punishment. Colson himself pled guilty and did time in prison, and that led to his salvation and the establishment of what we know as prison fellowship, and then he later became known as a great apologist for the faith, uh, and his work continues today through the Colson Center. This is an example of how God uses broken and tragedy, broken people and tragedy for his own purposes. But the point here is, that in that situation, in the Watergate situation, nobody's life was being threatened. It was just prison time. That's all they were talking about. So uh, here's what Colson says about uh, that event in uh, surrounding the resurrection. He says, there were, quote, 12 powerless men, peasants really, facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beating, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breath that they had physically seen 
Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. So when you look at the character of the disciples, you can certainly see they exhibited some self-interest. They, you know, a tendency to save their own skins. They were hiding from the Jews, and Peter, who swore allegiance to Jesus, denied him three times when he was simply accused of an association with Jesus. Now, because the disciples and the New Testament writers had nothing to gain and everything to lose by declaring the re that the resurrection occurred, they are the most credible of witnesses. United States Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who died just a few years ago, had a very sharp, perhaps sarcastic wit by putting it this way, quote, it is not irrational to accept the testimony of eyewitnesses who had nothing to gain. The worldly wise do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So everything from Easter morning to the ascension had to be made up by the groveling enthusiasts as part of their plan to get themselves martyred. Okay? You get it. Now, so I, I put at the end of your sheet there, while people will die for a lie they think is the truth, no person in his or her right mind will die for what they know is a lie. The New Testament writers and other apostles didn't just believe the resurrection occurred, they witnessed it. And therefore, they, they were so certain of the resurrection that they demonstrated that certainty with their own blood. They were the most, and are the most credible of witnesses. To deny or ignore their testimony is to blind oneself to the most sacrificial and comforting realities of life, that Jesus, the spotless lamb, satisfied God's perfect justice and purity by paying for your sins and mine out of his perfect love for us. So please don't allow there any doubt to enter your mind. Find a way for your children to become secure in this truth. Now, some of you may be saying, well, you know, it's just too late. My kids are grown. They've, they've, they've gone off the path, uh, you know, They've, they've walked away from the faith or whatever. I know. Some of my family members have put out some pretty wacky things. But I want to encourage you to remember to love them despite their lack of faith. And why do I say that? Because I know Jesus loved me enough to bring me to salvation after I believed some pretty crazy things when I was younger. But in the meantime, if you equip yourself with the answers, when they're ready to talk, you will be better able to help them see that it takes more faith to believe the lies of the world than it does to be certain that God loves us so much that he did not require just any ordinary man to be sacrificed for our sins, but his very own son, the Lion of Judah, the spotless lamb that was slain. So as the worship team comes up, uh, let's all stand and recite this passage. Hopefully you can read that out of 1 Peter 3. Okay.
together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason